0: Before I get into my, my topic, which is anger today, uh, I was thinking, the way I've, I've thought about this sermon series, which is, we're calling it At War with Seven Deadly Sins, I remembered when I was maybe about 11 or 12, I, I saw this movie, it, it was called The Game of Death. I don't know if you're familiar with that classic. It, <laughs> It was one of the one of Bruce Lee movies, and when I was 11, I thought Bruce Lee was the coolest person in the world. I could not imagine anybody cooler than Bruce Lee. And if you don't know who he is, I'm sorry. It just you're miss, you're missing out. But in this particular movie, and all those movies, plot is not in general is a big deal in any of those martial arts movies. So I don't really know what he was after in the movie. I just remember he had to go through several rooms in the same building fighting each villain at a time until he got to the, to the main villain, which is surprisingly was played by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It's a great movie. You're going to want to watch it probably <laughs> after I, I build it up today. And Kareem surprised him with his very fluid movements of fighting, and it took Bruce Lee... about 30 seconds to figure it out and and of course he got whatever he was after in the final room i don't even remember anymore but the idea is that he went one villain at a time one room at a time dealing with these particular obstacles and i think of seven deadly sins in that way in in some in some way as we have approached it we're taking one at a time and we're trying to really understand what that particular sin is like envy or lust or greed or gluttony, and then, and then we're trying to figure out how we can deal with that. Now, you may find that uh, any particular sin may not be a big deal to you, but you may find that another sin may be a much bigger deal than you thought. So, we, we're going through this process with the idea that we can all grow in Christ, and we can uh, assume holier lives for his sake. So, that's the idea behind this series. Now, of course, there are more than seven sins, and All sins are deadly. But this sevenfold structure serves as a diagnostic for us. And you can really look at your life and say, what am I struggling with? Maybe I've never considered gluttony as a sin. And now I see it in scripture and so I have to deal with it in my life. So that's the idea. As we wind down and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar will be waiting for us on Good Friday when we get to the final room which is pride. And so we will be dealing with that on Good Friday to finish our series. Now, would you please stand with me as you're able? We'll we'll affirm our trust in God's Word, and then I'll read our two passages from Proverbs for us. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. Would you remain standing as I read from Proverbs 14, verse 29. Proverbs 14, Verse 29, and then we'll read Proverbs sixteen thirty two, And you can feel free to use the Bibles in the pews or your own Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one of ours. We would love for you to have it. Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. And then Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You may be seated. The first proverb tells us that how we deal with anger reveals whether we are wise or foolish. And so from that I take the first point in our outline, which is we need to understand anger. We need to understand what it is. And you'll find as we go on that it's a little tricky. And then the second proverb tells us that there's great benefit in controlling your anger and that self-control in some ways is more difficult to accomplish than winning a military battle like taking a city. So from the second proverb, I take our second point of outline, which is we need to learn to control anger. So first, we need to understand it. And secondly, we need to learn to control it. So those are my two points. And uh, let me get into the nature of anger first. Here's the tricky thing about anger. It's not always wrong, nor is it always right. In fact, in Scripture, The same word is used positively and negatively depending on the context. So, for example, anger or wrath is one of God's attributes. God is perfect. that's a perfect attribute. So, anger is not sinful when God exercises anger. So, in Psalm 76, verse 7, it says, But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? That's positive. That's right for God to be angry. In Mark 3, verse 5, when the Pharisees questioned whether it was lawful for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, it says that Jesus looked around them with anger. It was right for Jesus to be angry. Jesus is a perfect human being, perfectly God, and his expression of anger is not sinful. It's good. It's righteous. On the other hand, the same exact word that is used of Jesus being angry is used in Colossians 3, verse 8, as a sin to be put away. We see this duality of anger being good or bad, depending on the circumstance and the agent of this anger, most clearly in Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27. Familiar verse, I'm sure, to most of us. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 27, he says, be angry and do not sin. The implication is that you can be angry and sin, or you can be angry and not sin. In fact, it's a command to be angry, but then there's a qualification. Be angry, but make sure that you don't sin in your anger. And then it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This seems very serious that in the same two verses you have the positive picture of anger and a negative picture of anger and in fact it's satanic in some way. That somehow the devil can actually use this. we got to be very careful so we don't stay angry because the devil may use that as an opportunity to harm us or others. So we really need to understand when anger is sinful and when it is godlike. Don't you want to know that? Because we're all dealing with anger, so don't you want to know when it's right and when it's wrong? I'd like to offer four descriptions of anger to help us work through this. Four descriptions. So if you're taking notes, you want to make sure you leave room for four points under the first point, okay? Number one, anger is a moral, it's a moral emotion. One uh, writer describes anger as passionate againstness. Againstness. so you're against you're passionately against something you think is wrong when you are angry at something you have already determined that it's wrong you've already made that moral assessment and you've pronounced a judgment on it listen to David Powlison who's, who's a counselor a Christian counselor and wrote a great book on anger he says at its core anger is very simple It expresses, I am against that. It's an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. You notice something, size it up and say, that matters, and it's not right. You encounter something in your world that crosses the line. Anger expresses the energy of your reaction to something you find offensive and wish to eliminate. Human beings come wired with the capacity to react with displeasure toward real wrongs and to act forcefully to make wrongs right. In other words, we are moral beings. We're made in the image of God, so we are wired to operate in anger's logic. That matters, and it's wrong. It displeases me, and I'm against it. I should change it, remove it, destroy it. The core is that something important is not the way it's meant to be, and we are moved to take action. Have you considered that when you get angry, when I get angry, we're making a moral judgment? Our anger expresses how we see the world, what we think is right, what we think is wrong, what we think is important. The right God-like anger is anger towards something you think is wrong and actually is wrong. It's legitimately wrong. And whether you, what you think is wrong is actually wrong determines whether your anger is sinful or not. So in other words, if you get mad at something that isn't actually wrong or important, that's not a righteous kind of anger. But if you are angry at something that is important and is legitimately wrong, yeah, you better be angry about it. Why would you not be angry when something is not the way it's supposed to be and it's really important? I think of the, that instance in Scripture where Jesus finds out that Lazarus is dying and he goes and by the time he gets there, Lazarus is dead, his friend whom he loves. And Scripture tells us, this is in John 11, verse 33, that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So he sees Lazarus' sister weeping. He's weeping, and he is greatly, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, this deeply moved idea doesn't just denote sorrow. Of course, he was sorrowful. He was sad. But it also denotes indignation. there's, There's wrath. There's anger. There's displeasure that his friend is dead. And Jesus is angry at the death of Lazarus. Now, why was he angry? Because death is wrong. You see, it's, just, it's wrong, and it's important because his friend is directly affected by it. And so Jesus, who knows how the world should be, right? He knows how the world is supposed to operate. He knows that death is not supposed to be part of our experience. And when he sees death, he gets angry. And it's absolutely right. Death is his enemy. In fact, it says it's his final enemy. And Jesus is passionately against it. God is angry because he is against sin and all that sin brought into the world. Anger is an exercise of God's moral emotion. God is making a moral judgment about something and he's angry about it. If God were not angry if he were only a God of love, as some theologians pretend that he is, it would necessarily mean that there is nothing wrong in the world. Let me say this again, because there is so much conversation in the church and in the world about God not being a wrathful God. But if God is not a wrathful God, that means that God looks at the world and he says, everything is fine. See, I don't need to worry about anything. I can be happy about just the way things are. Now, do you want that God? Because that that is what that theology, that is what those those, uh, thoughts promote, is the God who doesn't care that things are wrong, that things are evil, and so he's not angry about it. Of course God is angry at sin. How can he not be? He has perfect moral judgment. And so when he sees something that's evil, yes, he's angry at that. It's right to be angry for us as well at anything that is legitimately wrong. But it's not right to be angry at something that we have determined to be wrong that actually isn't. What does it tell you about yourself? I'll put myself in that category as well. What does it tell us about ourselves that I am more angry at the 17-year-old at the drive through window who forgot to put the extra pickles on my chicken sandwich, which I specifically told him to do that. I am more angry about that than hundreds of, literally hundreds of kids in our community that come to school hungry every day. Why is it that my experience at the drive through has the potential to get me riled up within seconds. But I'm not that concerned about these huge societal problems in my community. What does it tell you? My moral judgment is askew, it's not right. And so I personalize things that are not important. But things that are important and wrong, I don't care about. So I should get angry about some things, and I should stop being angry about other things. So that's number one. To understand anger, we need to see it as a moral emotion. Secondly, we need to see it as a defensive emotion. It is defensive. It's meant to defend something or someone. If the first description of anger as a moral emotion has to do with determining what is wrong, the second one has to do with defending the wronged. If someone has been wronged, anger defends them. Anger has this ambassadorial function. I I come on behalf of someone else. I represent someone or something else. I'm defending something that is valuable to me. And thus anger, I think rightly understood, is rooted in love. Timothy Keller for example says, anger is love in motion toward a threat to that which I love. Anger is love in motion toward a threat To that which I love. What he's saying is that I get angry about somebody or something being threatened that has tremendous value and significance to me. In many cases, anger is completely appropriate because we are defending someone we are supposed to defend. Here's my illustration, and I did run it by my wife, asked her if I have the permission to do that. If you are a parent, you will identify with this. If you're a parent of a child with special needs, you will identify with it more. Uh, there's this process that we as parents of children with special needs go through. You go, you go to these meetings to, to help the school determine what the plan for your child's education is. It's called IAP, Individualized Education Plan, I think is what it stands for. And so you go and you have this consultation with teachers and there's specialists there are therapists and it's a high stress time because based on that conversation it's determined what kind of services your child will get or sometimes even what school your child will go to so it's a very important time and we have noticed and experienced that parents get really serious about that conversation so when my wife goes into one of those meetings <laughs> You don't really want to be in her way, let me just say. There's a mama bear kind of a mode that she goes into. I once caught her putting tape on her knuckles before the meeting. That's not true. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's that, that kind of attitude. Because why? Because she is going in, and any parent of special needs is going in to defend your child. You're going to speak on their behalf because they can't speak for themselves. You're going to advocate for them. And so that aggressive attitude is actually, I think, is appropriate. Now, you don't want to be mean, of course. You want to, you want to be gracious to, to people. But there is that, that certain direction that your emotion is going to, and that's right. Because you're defending someone whom God has given into your care to defend and to advocate for. And so when we think about different experiences in life, and you think about, why, why am I angry about this? One question to ask would be, what am I defending? Who am I defending? What is it? Now, it could be you. You may be defending yourself, your reputation, your honor, whatever. It could be someone else. It could be an idea or a cause that's important. And then the question has to be asked, is it important? Right? Is it right for me to be angry about this or about this person? Now, God, as we know from Scripture, is fiercely protective of those he loves. Empires fell because they decided to mess with God's people. That's the story of Scripture. Now, imagine how protective God is of those he loves, that he would be willing to rearrange human history to defend his people. Now, remember a passage about Jesus' anger towards uh, death or against death in the Lazarus experience? It wasn't just that Jesus thought it was morally wrong for death to infringe on, on his friend or that death had no place in God's creation. Certainly, that was the case. But he was also defending Lazarus, his friend whom he loved. And that love for his friend produced a righteous kind of anger against death. And so what did he do? He rose He rose him from the dead. He, it's amazing that, that, that Jesus followed through on that anger by actually fixing that particular problem and releasing his friend from the clutches of death because his anger was rooted in love for his friend. It was love in motion toward a threat to his friend's life. Now, as an aside, let me encourage you to appreciate God's wrath in this way. Again, I go back to the conversation that is happening among many people today who struggle with the idea of a wrathful God. And I resonate with that. I think there's legitimate questions to be asked to that. But a God who is not wrathful is a God who is not loving. You can't love and not also experience anger. It's impossible. If you love, you will be angry at any threat to the person that you love. So if God doesn't get angry, he doesn't love. If God doesn't get angry at something that threatens you, he doesn't love you. You see how you can't, Take Scripture and God's own revelation of Himself in Scripture and pull it apart and say, yeah, this attribute doesn't make sense to us anymore. You're pulling God apart. You can't can't delete things from His nature. They all work together. Those excellencies work together perfectly in His character. So yes, He's loving. Absolutely, He's a loving God. But he is a wrathful God at the same time. And those are connected and you can't pull them apart. Because he's loving, he is angry at anything and anyone who threatens those that he loves. When you think about God's anger, instead of thinking of that as a problem, as something to overcome, think of it as a as a tremendously encouraging category of God's character because it's working for you, it's working on in your favor. Because if God loves you, that means he's directing his wrath against anything that threatens you. I find it tremendously encouraging that God says, anybody messes with my kids, I am coming to that IAP. <laughs> and I'm getting the best for my children, no matter what stands in their way that wrath is constructive, that wrath is loving for his people. Think about it this way and be encouraged that God is who he says he is. Because it actually matters. All these things matter in our relationship with him. So when you think about your anger, the question is, what am I defending here? What or whom do I love? Is the object of my love the right object? That will determine whether your anger is sinful or not. Number three, the third description, anger is a violent emotion. It's a violent emotion. So the first description had to do with determining what's wrong. Secondly, the second was with defending the wronged. And the third one has to do with destroying the wrongdoer. It's destroying the wrongdoer. Anger always seeks to destroy. Jesus says in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What Jesus says is that there's no such thing as nonviolent anger. If you are angry, yes, you may not act it out completely and murder somebody, but this is absolutely where it leads. Just like we sing when we're happy, and when you, you can't suppress it even if you can't sing, right, even if nobody is listening, it's a natural outflowing of joy. So murder is a natural outflowing of anger. Now, you can control it, and we're learning to do that, but anger by its nature is a violent emotion. Whenever we're angry, we're calling for blood. You're calling for blood. Anger is inherently violent. Whenever we perceive something is wrong and seeking to defend what we love, our next step is we're going to destroy the threat. I'm going to destroy whoever is threatening the person that I love. Blood has to spill. I grew up in an apartment for many years where there was a literal hole in the kitchen wall. I remember very distinctly, you walk into our kitchen in, in Kiev and to the left, it was a very small kitchen, so you have the wall and we had some weird like 70s vinyl paneling, not exactly sure how people came up with that idea and who thought it was a good idea to hide like parts of the wall. Uh, it's a weird thing and it was light blue. And at some point I'm sure it looked beautiful, but when I was growing up, it was old and there was the light switch, and right, right underneath it was a hole in that vinyl paneling. The story was my dad, when he was a teenager, got mad at his dad and just punched the wall. We didn't and they didn't, for whatever reason, they didn't fix it for years. You know, I just remember distinctly. We're not Ukrainians are not quick to fix things, as you will learn about me. The upside of that is there was an object lesson always you know, in my childhood of the destructiveness of anger. But my dad, as he matured, and I, when I knew him you know, growing up, I didn't know him as an explosively violent person. He was never explosive around. But man, was he violent in the slow-release kind of way. And he was angry. It's an angry person. But he didn't show it in... in, in you know, punching the wall or punching anybody else. It wasn't like that. He would just get silent for days. Just wouldn't talk to people. I remember, as a kid, you know, you're growing up, you witness a fight between your parents, and then your dad just stops talking to your mom for days. Now, what was that? Was that not anger? Was that not destructive? Was that not violent? Yeah. Different, in a different way. But still, he was dishing out that aggression. He was was just kind of controlling the portions of his anger, of his violence towards my mom over days. Now, what was my mom doing when that was happening? She was absorbing it. She was absorbing the violence of anger. And what does that do? It destroys. And eventually, it destroyed their marriage. And I think it contributed to my mom's health problems for the rest of her life. Why? Because anger is inherently violent. It's inherently destructive. So however it is expressed, maybe it's expressed in an explosive way, and then you see the violence right away. Maybe it is expressed in a slow, kind of you're dishing it out over time way, passive-aggressive kind of way. But either way, that destruction is happening. And as it's happening... And if it's directed towards you and you're trying to absorb it, you try not to create any more problems and you're just absorbing it, now it's destroying you from within. So you become resentful. You become bitter. You get sick. Anger has to be expressed. You cannot suppress it without without consequences. It has to be expressed, and when it is expressed, it destroys. Now we find in Scripture that God's anger is violent as well. Its trajectory is always toward judgment. Now again, I think it makes perfect sense when we understand what anger is. God sees something that is wrong. He makes that perfect moral judgment. He seeks to defend what he loves, whether it's his creation or his people or his glory. And so he punishes the wrongdoer. That's the, that's the next logical step. You have to punish the evil. You know, some people say, and I'm sure you've heard it said, I'm sure you've maybe even said it, I'm sure I've said it, that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Have you heard that phrase? He hates the sin and loves the sinner. There is truth in that phrase, and depending on how you use it, I think you can use it rightly. But there's also falsehood in that phrase. The falsehood is that God can't hate people. That he kind of hates this idea about you or what you've done, but he doesn't hate you. Well, Scripture tells us that, that God does hate sinners. Scripture says that. So if somebody comes to you and says, God hates the sin but, but loves the sinner, you tell them, Psalms 5.5 5 says, God hates all evildoers. Hates all evildoers. Why? Anger is inherently violent. It's going to be directed towards a person or a thing that threatens what God loves. And yet, God is love, and he also loves sinners, right? Both are true. Scripture tells us he hates all evildoers, and it also tells us that he so loved the world. So how does, how does God reconcile this? this, the violent impulse of anger, and then the love for his people that he means to protect from his anger that has now become a threat to his people. Have, have you done this kind of thinking in your Christian life? Where you read the Bible and you say, it says this here, and it says this here, it seems opposite, but the Bible is true. How do I reconcile that? And when you think and reconcile it, you emerge with a richer picture of who God is. And more wonder at what he has done for you in Christ. What God has actually done with this violent wrath that is directed towards the sinner because we have sinned against him, we have threatened his glory, we have threatened his creation, what he actually does with his, that wrath, he absorbs it on our behalf. That violence doesn't just go away, it's impossible. That anger has to be expressed, that judgment has to happen. But God says, I will take it upon myself and I will absorb it on your behalf so that I can love you and protect you even from my own wrath. That is exactly what happened on the cross. When Jesus died, it was God violently expressing his anger towards sin and sinners. And at the same time, because of his great love for us, absorbing that on our behalf so we can be free from that judgment. It's an amazing thing, and only God can come up with that. Come on, who, who would figure this out? Who would say that this is how God would deal with sin unless God actually deals with sin this way? It only makes sense because God describes himself in this way and reveals himself as a God who is both loving and wrathful. And those are not contradictory, but actually work together for the salvation of his people. Listen to John Owen. You may have heard me use this Quote And I I love it because I think it, it so vividly describes what happened on the cross and how God judges sin that he hates. John Owen says, To see Christ, the wisdom and the power of God, always beloved of the Father, fear and tremble, bow and sweat, pray and die, to see him lifted up on the cross, the earth trembling beneath him, as if unable to bear his weight, to see the heavens darkened over him as if shut against his cry, and himself hanging between both as if refused by each, to see that all this is because of our sins, is to see clearly the holy justice and wrath of God against sin. Supremely in Christ do we learn this great truth That God hates sin and judges it with a dreadful and fearful judgment. When you look at the cross, you see the violence of God exploding. This is an explosive kind of anger that we see on the cross. And we can either accept that the cross is for us. That the wrath that is due us has been absorbed by Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross. That On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We can either accept that and embrace it by faith, or we can await his judgment on us. Those are the only two alternatives. Because that anger is going to have to work itself out through a violent action of judgment. Because God hates the evildoer, and yet he loves the evildoer, the cross of Jesus becomes the only expression of his wrath that is also an expression of his love for us. So we either agree with Jesus, who says on the cross, it is finished, and say God's wrath has been exercised, it's been absorbed, it's been removed from me, or we wait until he comes to judge us. In Revelation 19, we read, Then I saw heaven opened, We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the rest of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, I cling to the cross when I read these passages. And I say, Jesus, you said it was finished for me, that the violent wrath of God has been expressed on the cross, and I'm free from that. Otherwise, Revelation 19 is what awaits me. So as we try to understand anger, we need to consider its violent nature and how we deal with it. We may deal with it in a sinful way, or we may deal with it in light of the cross of Jesus. And the final description of anger, which kind of pulls these things together briefly, is that anger is a royal emotion. It's a royal emotion, number four. It's kings determine what is right and what's wrong in the kingdom. Kings are entrusted with defending the realm. Kings can use force and violence to establish their rule and execute just punishment. So when we get angry, we act like kings. But do we have the right to do that is the question. Can we make ourselves king? Or is there another king we need to submit to? Listen to David Paulson, that counselor I, I quoted a little bit earlier. He says, there is something high and mighty about anger. When distilled to its basic elements, Anger goes wrong when you anger goes wrong when you get godlike. Your desires become divine law. Poke your way into every example of bad anger and you'll find god playing. Whether I'm really ticked off, just a little irritated or deeply embittered, it's all about almighty me. Anger is demanding and entitled. This is what I want. My will be done. It's superior. The world and all that is in it are subject to me. All persons, objects, and events are subject to my opinion and evaluation. It's accusatory. You have violated my will and you deserve punishment. Does that describe your experience of anger? If it does, that's a sinful kind of anger where you have placed yourself in the position of authority and you're judging as a king, but you're not a king. So whose rule are you under? And whose rule determines whether your anger is sinful or not? And finally, in a few minutes left for us, let's learn to control anger. Now I've given you already a lot of stuff and you can pull all those applications from what we've already said so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it but I'm going to give you one big idea and then three phrases to remember. The big idea is that it comes from our two proverbs because these proverbs actually tell us how we are to deal with our anger and they both tell us that we need to be slow to anger. We need to be slow to anger. So on your anger card, if you're collecting all the the sin cards that we've been passing out, the discipline is becoming slow to anger. So for me to learn to control my anger, to determine whether it's sinful or not, I need to slow down. And some of you may be thinking, well, this doesn't seem very helpful. It seems like you're just telling us not to be angry. And how can I do that? I think it's brilliant. (laughs) I think Scripture actually gives us the most practical thing we can use to control our anger. Let me explain. Do you remember when Jonah got angry at God because God decided to forgive the people of Nineveh? It's in the last chapter of the book of Jonah. He was very angry. I I always think of Jonah as the little critter book. If you're little critter books, you know, there's a book that says, I'm so mad. and, And it shows the little critter just like, this face, you know. I always think of Jonah looking like that in that chapter. But Jonah is just so angry. And how does God respond? This is Jonah 4 verse 4 if you want to look it up later. God comes to Jonah who's, who's saying, I'm so angry I'm ready to die. God comes to Jonah and God says, do you do well to be angry? God actually starts counseling Jonah about his anger. God wants Jonah to slow down and examine his anger. He wants Jonah to consider if what he thought was wrong, which is forgiving Nineveh, was actually wrong, it wasn't. God wants Jonah to consider what he was defending, which was his own reputation and and his national pride. And whether it was worth defending at the expense of the salvation of thousands of people in Nineveh. And it wasn't. God wanted Jonah to consider whether taking his own life was the right plan of absorbing the violence of his own anger. And it wasn't. God was counseling Jonah. In the moment, as Jonah is angry, God is saying, Slow down. Be slow to anger. Think about what's happening. Why are you angry? What do you love that you're defending? What are you going to do with this violent impulse that's welling up in your heart? Who is your king? Whose values and loves are more important? Do you see what God is doing? And God is willing to do that with any of us. The Holy Spirit actually counsels us through those times of anger. So when you feel that emotion, that moral right, ambassadorial emotion, that violent, royal emotion welling up in your heart, the best thing you can do is slow it down and be slow to anger. And as you do that, you will determine whether this anger is sinful or it's godlike. So before you commit to it, Before you commit to following through this trajectory, you need to determine whether it's right or wrong. One writer said, Interrogating our affections is the best way to mute misplaced aggression. Interrogating our affections is the best way to mute our misplaced aggression. So let me give you these three phrases to finish, and I'm not spending hardly any time on this, okay? As you slow down and as you examine your anger, these are three phrases to remember. Number one, bow to the king. Bow to the king. Do you see Jesus as your king? Or are you acting as if you are the one in charge? Who determines what's right and what's wrong and what punishment is appropriate? See, the first thing we need to do when we feel that anger coming on is to submit to the rule of Christ and say, Lord, you are the king. You are the king. I'm I'm about to act in this royal punishment that I'm, I'm, I'm about to do that, but before I do that, let me slow down and acknowledge that you are the king and that your law is more important than my law, that you rule with justice and patience. And then ask him, Lord, how do you see the situation? Do you think I will do well to be angry? What do you think from your throne about this wrong that has been committed? Is this an offense against me or is this an offense against you? So bow to the king. Number two, feel the love. Feel the love. Why love, right? Good question. Because unless you think about God's love when you examine your anger, you won't be able to really figure out whether it's righteous or not. Remember that God, whose wrath you rightly deserve, loves you. That this king that you are bound to loves you. And let his grace transform your anger. And love him back. And love what he loves. Jonathan Parnell, from the book that we've been using for The Seven Deadly Sins, says, Our best means to fight sinful anger is to remember the anger of God, to remember His love and to what cost He has gone to end all threats against it. It's only there when we see God's love, when we align our loves with His, that our anger can be sanctified. Loving like He loves... Is the only chance our anger has of being right. What are you really angry about? We should answer with the things that attack the glory of God. Over time, and finally on the last day, that kind of love will produce right anger and end all wrong anger. The antidote to anger isn't placid stoicism or cool indifference, it's loving like crazy what is most lovable. The demise of sinful anger starts with our relentless pursuit to be enthralled by God, to be overcome with Him, and then to be moved by Him to value all that He values. We say no to sinful anger and its pattern of consuming us as we say yes to God's wonder and allow ourselves to be more and more consumed by Him. This is why I say one of the phrases to remember is feel the love. Feel His love. Feel your love for Him. Love what He loves. Be consumed by His love, and that will transform how you see everything around you. And finally, the last phrase to remember. Remember the blood. Remember the blood. Remember that on the cross, Jesus absorbed God's wrath. Now here's what it means. If Jesus died for me, I do not need to defend myself anymore. Have you come to grips with this idea? When Jesus says that we should be meek, that's what he means. He says, now, because God has defended you against the greatest enemy you have, you don't have to defend yourself anymore. You, you can, amen, you can, you can let go of the offenses against you. You can have the freedom to be meek and to love others more than you love yourself. See, I don't need to prove that I am the king because the real king died to protect me. I don't need to punish those who wrong me. I can love them because God and Jesus loves me and his love is sealed by his blood. Remember the blood. It also means that I can forgive. Most of us have been taught to forgive by absorbing the violence of someone's anger. This is how my mom tried to forgive my dad, and she couldn't do it because she tried to absorb all that anger that was coming at her, and she was just trying to keep the peace and be okay with this and not retaliate. But eventually, you know, if we're not talking about some minor offenses, but you're talking about real stuff, Eventually, you realize you don't have the capacity to absorb all the anger that's coming at you. And so it's starting to destroy you. So what do you do with this? If you remember the blood, you remember there is someone whose capacity is infinite that took that violence upon himself. So when somebody wrongs me, and it's a real wrong, I can actually practically say, Jesus spilled his blood for that. And Jesus can take this pain and he can absorb it. I don't need to. It doesn't need to destroy me. It doesn't need to make me bitter or resentful. It doesn't need to make me sick because someone else with an infinite capacity to absorb stuff like that has absorbed this as well. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can take our pain to him and let him absorb it. I don't need to carry the violence of anger against me, within me. I can transfer it on Jesus by faith. Be slow to anger, bow to the King, feel the love, and remember the blood.